Happy New Year. If you have a copy of God's Word, turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. If you do not have a Bible, I would love uh, to give you one this morning. In this middle section in the back, we have a little bookshelf and some Bibles on top. Please take one and keep it. That can be our gift to you. Matthew chapter 20. We have been, over the last couple of years, actually taking spurts of the book of Matthew and running for maybe eight to 12 weeks at a time. And so we are in a, the final sprint of the book of Matthew. Over the next two months, uh, we're gonna finish Matthew, Matthew 20 through 28, and I'm really excited. Uh, one of the things we've been doing is looking at these larger chunks of this book, rather than taking what you might be familiar with as just one parable, uh, but we'll take actually a whole chapter, and it'll have a parable, and then another story with the disciples, and then something else Jesus says. And part of what we're seeing is, how did the, the author of this gospel intend all of these things to flow together and actually see some bigger picture themes in the book of Matthew? So we're going to do that this morning by looking at Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. I'm going to read the whole thing. Uh, that's one of the things we do here at Shalford. We, we typically read uh, the entire scripture before we preach. And so when we take longer chunks, that means we read a little bit more of God's word. So Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 1. This is what God's word says. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the workers on one denarius, he sent them into his vineyard for the day. When he went out about nine in the morning, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He said to them, you also go out into my vineyard and I'll give you whatever is right. So off they went. About noon and about three, he went out again and did the same thing. Then about five, he went and found others standing around and said to them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one hired us, they said to him. You also go into my vineyard, he told them. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard told his foreman, call the workers and give them their pay, starting with the last and ending with the first. When those who were hired, about five came, they each received one denarius. So when the first ones came, they assumed they would get more, but they also received a denarius each. When they received it, they began to complain to the landowner. These last men put in one hour, and you made them equal to us who bore the burden of the day's work and the burning heat. He replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? Are you jealous because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first last. While going up to Jerusalem, Jesus took the 12 disciples aside privately and said to them on the way, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons approached him with her sons. She knelt down to ask him for something. What do you want? He asked her. Promise, she said to him, that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? We are able, they said to him. He told them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right and my left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. When the 10 disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them over and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. 
On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. There were two blind men sitting by the road, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd demanded that they keep quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Jesus stopped, called them, and said, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, they said to him, open our eyes. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes. Immediately they could see, and they followed him. God, this is your word. Help us to receive it as your word. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your instruction this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, it's the new year, and so maybe you've been bombarded with uh, the thoughts or the blog posts or the social media posts about New Year's resolutions. It's a new year and a new you. You can do new things uh, all year long if you want to, and today is the day to start on your New Year's resolutions. And I've got to be honest, I'm not much of a New Year's resolutions type of guy. I typically buck uh, anything that everybody tells me I have to do, I typically say, no, I don't have to do that. And I'll go out of my way to not do it. Um, but New Year's resolutions are an interesting thing. We, we, we have this vision for the new year ahead almost as a blank slate. And we look ahead, maybe you don't set resolutions, but maybe you have some goals or maybe you have something you think, you know what, I really need to get in shape. I've eaten mass amounts of oatmeal cream pies all the month of December and something's got to change. Uh, or I've got to buy a whole new wardrobe in this new year. And so you come into the new year and you're thinking, I get to do things differently now. Uh, maybe I want to read more intentionally. Maybe I want to grow in this skill for work. Maybe I want to uh, ha- set a spiritual goal, some sort of spiritual discipline you want to add to your life. And we have all these things we want to add to our life to make our lives better, to make us better, that we think we can do moving into the new year. And then we come and we read Matthew 20. And it seems like in Matthew 20, Jesus is giving us an invitation by teaching us about the kingdom of God. And I think what we see in three parts as we're gonna walk through this chapter this morning is that Jesus invites the last to become the least in order to serve the lowest. Jesus invites us who are the last. And he invites us to do what? To become the least. Why? Why would we become the least? So that we might serve the lowest. Let's walk through those things in order, and let's see this morning how Jesus teaches us that. The first 16 verses are a parable, and it tells us in verse 1 what the parable is about. Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, you read a parable that seems pretty straightforward. A guy hires workers all day long. He goes out multiple times and hires these workers. He agrees with the very first workers, this is how much I'm paying you. Now, I remember a few years ago, we needed some work done around here, and me and another guy went to downtown Roswell, and it's like the marketplace. You can pick up some workers. Now, I had not done this in years. In high school, I worked landscaping a little bit, and I lived in Canton, and we could go to a place in downtown Canton and pick up some daily workers, and you'd pull up and begin negotiating how much it would cost. Now, cost of living, Roswell and Canton, maybe 10 years ago and today, uh, but these guys were like, no. Uh, $25 an hour or something ridiculous. And we were like, I think we can do this on our own, you know. I don't think we need help anymore. Uh, But you negotiate some daily wage rate. Hey, this is how much uh, we're getting paid today. This guy, this landowner goes out and does the same thing. Then he goes out a few hours later and he keeps bringing workers in. And then when it comes time to pay them, he starts with the people who worked the least and begins paying them and backing up to the people who worked all day. 
when the people who worked all day see how much the people who worked one hour are getting paid, they start doing the math in their head. Okay, we agreed on a, on a denarius, but if he's paying them that, we worked, I don't know, eight times more than that. Maybe we're getting more than we agreed on. Well, then it comes time for them to get paid, and they get paid exactly what they agreed on. It's pretty straightforward, right? And they have this sense in which this is not fair. But if you look at the parable, what happens is those who worked all day got exactly what they deserved, and then those who worked less got more than they deserved. So what's the point of the parable? What does this teach us about the kingdom of God? What does this teach us about the way we receive the kingdom of God, the way God gives away his kingdom? Well, the all-day workers seem to think that this is not fair. I think the truth for us in that nugget is that when we're in positions of power and in positions of strength, we often want what's fair. But when we're in positions of need, we often want what's gracious. When I'm, when I'm in a position where I can leverage myself and I think I've got a resume of things I've earned, I want what's fair. I've earned this. I mean, I've done way more than them. Shouldn't I get paid more than them? Wait a minute. What's going on? Many of us have kids. We just came out of Christmas. How many of your kids compared what each other got for Christmas? And wait a minute, how many bags of those muffins did she get? Wait a minute, how many toys? Did, uh, wait, how many minutes of TV did she get? Well, how many did I tell you you got? Well, no, that doesn't matter. How many did they get? And there's this comparison. Did I get the same amount as everybody else? Is there justice happening in the household? The ones who worked all day thought this isn't fair. They wanted what's fair. But those who were in need were glad to get what was gracious. I think the reason this parable teaches us about the kingdom is because of the question that Jesus asks within the parable. Are you jealous because I am generous? Are you jealous because I am generous? Their wages were based on the generosity of the king, not based on what they earned through their own hard work. And so it is for us, friends. Our wages in the kingdom of God are not based on what you will earn in 2024. They are not based on your resolutions. They are not based on how well you follow through on those resolutions. Your wages in the kingdom of God are based on the generosity of the king. Now, Jesus isn't trying to allegorize the story. Now, an allegory would mean every bit of the story corresponds to something in reality. A parable is a little bit different. A parable has one overarching principle. So if you try to find every piece in the story and match it to something that was happening in Jesus' day, you're gonna mess up the point of the parable. So it's not that, well, the earliest workers were Jews and the latest workers were Gentiles and the Jews are mad that now the Gentiles got something. That's not the point of the parable. That's not what parables are meant. That's not how they communicate. So just Bible reading tip. That's not how parables communicate. Parables communicate one overarching principle. This parable is about the principle that all who are invited into the kingdom receive the same generous blessing from God the king. The kingdom levels the playing field so that both the best and the worst are all dependent on the generosity of the king. One commentator even makes a connection to the prodigal son and how the older son did exactly what he was supposed to do. And at the end of the story, he got exactly what he deserved. He'd enjoyed the father's blessings his entire life. But when he saw the generosity of the father lavishing gifts and feasts and parties on the younger son who came home, the other son went outside and pouted. Why? You got, and the father says, you got exactly what you deserved. You've been here. 
You've enjoyed my bounty and blessing your whole life. Why are you upset? You've gotten everything you deserved. And he was upset at the generosity of the father because the younger son did not get what he deserved. But what's interesting about this passage is as the parable ends and Jesus says the line, so the last will be first and the first last, he's giving us a principle how, about how we enter the kingdom. But then we read verses 17 through 19. And Jesus himself embodies this principle. Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, the one through whom all things were made, has come to earth with the express purpose of suffering, dying, and being raised again. He, the first, came to be the last. He didn't come to express his nature as the first and exert authority and power over everyone. He came quite the opposite. If anyone had a reason to turn and cross his arms, pout, and say, that's not fair, it would have been Jesus. And in fact, he would have been the only one to say that and it'd actually be right. Yet, Jesus marched on towards Jerusalem. And he marched there to endure precisely what was not fair so that you and I could get what's not fair. Because friends, we don't want what's fair. Believe me, we do not want what's fair. But because Jesus took what wasn't fair, you and I get to receive what's not fair. Now right after this, we see the disciples completely misunderstand what Jesus is teaching. We see that Jesus invites the least. But now we're moving on to see, invites the last, but now he's moving on and, and he's gonna try to teach his disciples that I'm inviting you as the last so that you might become the least. And he uses this story about how the disciples misunderstand this. They misunderstand honor and greatness in the kingdom. And so starting in verse 20, I mean, how embarrassing that for all eternity, James and John, I mean, I will make fun of them one day. Your mom asked on your behalf to sit at Jesus' right and left. How embarrassing. What did they do to Matthew to make him write that down for thousands of years? So all of us will remember that. So their mom comes and says, I want them to sit at these places of honor. And Jesus asked another question. In each of these sections, Jesus asks a question. The first question was embedded in the parable, right? Are you jealous because I'm generous? Now here's a question. He turns to the mother. What do you want? He's pulling out her heart, her desires. What is it that you want? Well, I want my sons to sit at the right and the left. And he asks a question about a cup. Now, what does he mean about a cup? In the Old Testament, when it referred to a cup, it usually referred to a cup of judgment. Psalm 75, Jeremiah 25, Ezekiel 23. And Jesus actually affirms, you will drink a cup of suffering. You will suffer. But to sit at my right and my left is not for me to just give out right here and right now. It's for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. The places of greatest honor in the kingdom cannot be aspired to and earned. That is so important to wrap our minds around. The places of honor in the kingdom are not earned. They are freely given. So there's nothing you can do in 2024 to say, you know what? I've got to get back in God's good grace. I know he's been good to me, and I've just not been. I need to get back 
where I'm, I'm reading my Bible every day, I'm coming to church, I'm gonna start giving, I, I'm, I'm gonna serve. I'm, it's time for me to get back because I know that God's not happy with me with the things I've been doing and I've really gotta work hard again to get back in God's good graces. Jesus is saying, the places of honor in the kingdom aren't earned. They're not aspired to. This isn't a position you apply for and send your resume in and say, hey, I think I have what it takes to sit at your right and your left, Lord. That's not what the kingdom of God is about. And Jesus actually teaches this by showing what the Gentiles, the not God's people, how they live, how they rule, how they oversee and lead their people. He says the Gentile rulers are marked by two things, lording it over their people and acting as tyrants over their people. And Jesus is very clear. It must not be like that among you. When I read that, line from Jesus, it made me step back and ask, where else is Jesus that pointed and that clear? He's clear on a lot of positive teachings. Do this. This is good. But where else does he point that clearly to say, it should not be like this among you, my people in the kingdom? I mean, it doesn't get any clearer than that. You should not rule like the Gentiles who lord over, who act as tyrants over. That is not greatness in the kingdom. Now, we are discipled five days a week where we go to work, where we go to school. That greatness can be aspired to. It can be earned. Work your way up the social ladder. Work your way up the corporate ladder. Work your way up through college and high school. Work your way up and earn positions of honor, of prestige, of greater income, of greater status. Continue to work your way up. And then we come into church and Jesus tells us that the true kingdom we belong to is not like that. The way of the kingdom is different. The last are invited into the kingdom so that we might become the least, the servants. Now, it's important to note that we're not asked to lay down our ambition. Ambition can be very good, but rather we're asked to redefine our ambitions. Our greatest ambition should not be to elevate ourselves. It should be to lower ourselves so that we're in a position to be able to serve others. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not about lifting yourself up. It's about laying yourself down. This is what John the Baptist realized in John 3 when he recognized who Jesus was, that Jesus came. He kind of, Jesus kind of became, rightfully so, the center of attention. So then John the Baptist comes back and people are kind of going, hey, what do you think about this? And in John 3.30, John has this little line where he says, he must increase and I must decrease. I recognize my role in this thing now. It's not about me continuing to elevate myself as the greatest of the prophets, as the last of the prophets. John goes, no, it's not about that. I've got to decrease because my whole point is that Jesus would be lifted up. And in almost every area of our life, it really does feel like the opposite. You've got to assert yourself. You've got to work hard. You've got to earn the promotion and earn the job and earn the scholarship and earn your role in these places. And then if you do that, you can make enough money to save enough money to get the house you'd like and the cars you'd like. And then you can have kids finally when you're comfortable enough and then you can send them to the schools they want to go to and we can keep doing it all over again. Friends, ambition is not wrong. Having those things is not wrong. But we've got to be aware that the world would like to disciple us in a way that thinks that's the kingdom. Earn more, get more, be more comfortable. 
And that's our life. And Jesus actually says, if you're going to be great in the kingdom, you've got to be a servant. Now, if we can receive this word, this is actually very freeing for us. Because it means that you don't have to fight every day for your place in the kingdom of God. You don't have to worry about getting cut. and You don't have to worry about proving your worth. You don't have to worry at every annual review. You don't have to worry if you've done enough to maintain your spot on the team. You don't have to worry if you've done enough to keep your job. You don't have to worry if you're making ends meet and you're doing everything you need to do because that's not the point of being in the kingdom. It's not about how great you are. It's about can you lower yourself to serve others. Instead, you can focus your effort and your energy and your ambition on being the least of these in order to serve others. Now again, we have this pattern in chapter 20 where Jesus then embodies, sets the example for the exact thing he's teaching. Jesus himself, who is the son of man, came not to be served, but to serve. And how is it that Jesus serves? He gives his life as a ransom for many. He sacrifices himself for the good and the freedom of others. So to be sure that Jesus is not telling us to do something that he himself isn't doing first, he says, look, you've got to be a servant. There's no one higher than the Son of Man. That would have evoked language from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. That the Son of Man is coming to rule and to reign and to be powerful. But this Son of Man you've been looking forward to, Since Daniel 7, who's going to rule and reign and be king forever, he didn't come to be served by others like you would imagine a king would come. He came to serve others. So Jesus is inviting the last to become the least. And in this last bit, I I love that this story about the blind man is included here because Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to do the thing that he was born to do, to die. Everything's coming to a climax, to this crescendo. He's just given some very powerful teaching. The first will be last, the last will be first. Hey, you shouldn't, greatness is not defined by how awesome and honorable you are. It's defined by how well you serve others. And then here's this little story about a couple of blind men on the side of the road that Jesus decides to heal. What is this story doing here? Besides reminding us that Jesus never loses sight anyone. That in the midst of the climax of his life, when he's heading to do the very thing he was born to do, he still has the presence of mind to notice, to hear, and to heal two blind beggars. We're invited into the kingdom as the last so that we would become the least in order to save the lowest because that is the exact pathway that Jesus lived his life. We see in this uh, final few verses here, starting in verse 29, that the blind are on the road and they're on the side of the road probably because they're begging, probably because they didn't have anything. And there's this crowd going by and, and two things might surprise us about this story. The first thing might be their knowledge of Jesus. And it'd be one thing to acknowledge that they've heard the stories of his power, they've heard of other miracles, and they recognize that he has something that could benefit them. But that's not the way Matthew portrays the story. They don't just call out to him and say, Jesus, heal me. They call out and they say, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. 
that ought to surprise us a little bit. That they're not just calling out saying, give me the blessings. They're calling out recognizing, I know who you really are, Jesus. You're greater than just a, a miracle worker. You're the king that's going to reign forever. But the other thing that might surprise us is their persistence to continue calling out in spite of the crowd who demanded that they quiet down. Lord, have mercy on a son of David. Verse 31, the crowd demanded that they keep quiet, but they cried out all the more. I wonder what kind of lesson we could just pull out from that one verse. You know, a few hundred years ago, it was very popular for a preacher to take one verse and expound a whole sermon on it. And, and I think that verse would qualify. How are we encouraged to quiet down? Stop calling out. Maybe you believe in them, and that's nice. Maybe that gives you some peace of mind about what's gonna happen after you die, and that's great for you. But if you want your life to change, why don't you take something into your own hands and go do something about it? I mean, we're, again, discipled by the world in this godless way that puts a dome over our life and says, whatever you want to think exists outside of this world and the stuff we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands, that's nice, but it doesn't actually change anything about your life. So just live in the here and now. And if you want something to change, take care of it in the here and in the now. So we're discipled to believe all the time. There's nothing else out there. It's just this. This is all we've got. In spite of that discipleship and formation from the world, will we, like these blind beggars, continue to call out to Jesus? We'd be surprised at their persistence. We might be surprised when we realize that the lowly know more about Jesus than we do. But then in the story, Jesus shouldn't shock us anymore, but still does. He pays attention. Let's not jump past that to see the miracle. Let's, let's linger there for a moment. He hears them. It says in verse 32, Jesus stopped. You know, in the Psalms, it's, it's repeated pretty often that God hears me. You have heard my prayer. You have heard my cry. Don't ever think that he doesn't hear you. Let this one little phrase in verse 32, Jesus stopped, be a reminder to you that when you cry out, Jesus stops. He sees you and he hears you. It says he stopped and he called them. And what does he do? He asks a question. God doesn't change. He's been doing this since Genesis 3. He asks questions he doesn't need to ask in order to initiate a relationship that he wants. Adam and Eve, where are you? It's a bit like playing hide-and-seek with your kids. I, I know where you are, but we're trying to engage. We're trying to have a relationship. I want you to know I love you, and I'm with you. Adam and Eve, where are you? He stops, and he looks at these blind beggars, and he says, what do you want? I, I know what you want. You're blind. I, I, I know what could serve you right now. You've called me son of David. I, I know what you want. You want to be a part of the kingdom. But he asks them, what do you want me to do? Jesus hears them, he notices them, he pays attention to the lowest of people. Is there any better example of a servant than this? They say, Lord, open our eyes. 
Verse 34 says, moved with compassion. And this is a phrase that's exclusively used of Jesus. And it's a very interesting word that has a root word in it that talks about the, the deep bowels and innards of a human being. He's moved deep in his core that expresses itself in an emotional feeling towards these people of compassion. He's moved with compassion. That doesn't mean he feels sorry for them. That means something deep within him is churning because of their state. He's moved with compassion to care for these blind men. This is Jesus living as a servant. He didn't so have his eyes set on what he was going to do for the whole world that he lost sight of two lowly blind men on the side of the road in a big crowd. I hope we... Don't miss the lowly that God puts in our path for us to serve. I hope we can grow in our capacity to be moved with compassion, but we'll only be moved with compassion if we recognize the pattern of the kingdom. That the kingdom of God invites the last to become the least, to serve the lowest. And this is a path that Jesus himself lived. Now maybe this morning you've been exploring what it means to belong to the kingdom of God. Maybe you've been invited to be a follower of Jesus. Maybe you've not been totally sure what that takes. I don't know if I'm ready to make that kind of commitment. I hope you see from Matthew 20 the kind of people that are invited to the kingdom. You're not invited to the kingdom because Jesus sees you have what it takes. You're not recruited into the kingdom because you have a certain set of skills or abilities that he finds useful for his purposes. You're invited into the kingdom as the last and lowest, the ones who need grace and generosity of the king. Jesus isn't looking for the best and the brightest. He's looking for the last. So if you've been exploring what does it mean to be called into the kingdom of God, come. Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Now, maybe you belong to the kingdom and you've been wrestling with what life looks like now. Okay, I'm a follower of Jesus. What should my new year look like? What should my life look like as a follower of Jesus? Be encouraged this morning that Jesus is not expecting stardom from you. He does not need a star player. He does not, someone, not need someone who can do everything all the time. He needs someone who recognizes how needy and lowly they are. He doesn't need you to be amazing. He needs you to be you. And instead of building your life on your own ambition of how amazing you can be, you can build your life on the calling to actually lay your life down to become the least and serve others. This is a life that matters. Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is a life that's worth living in this new year. Let's pray.